Amen. My goodness, thank you, worship team. That was absolutely beautiful. Jake, Marcus, the whole team. I'm just, I love being just with all my friends. Like I said last night to our men, me and Marcus and Rachel were doing prayer meetings in January of 2001 together. We were doing 6 a.m. prayer meetings together 20 years ago. 20 years ago, so we're, we're 24, so we started at 4. So, uh, and then me and Jake have been running strong for 14 years, dear friend, and I'm so grateful for him and his family. So this is just such a sweet morning. Love you guys. You're awesome. I love you, Jake. <laughs> Good. <clears throat> All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 4. We're going to jump in. I'm going to punch you in the forehead, then we're going to end. I'm just playing. You're like, what are you talking about? Hey, I want to encourage you guys. I've written two books this year. Uh, that's what COVID does to you, shutting your house, so let's write books. I wrote a book called Teach Us to Pray, prayer that accesses heaven and changes the earth. The one thing the disciples asked Jesus was teach us to pray. And they heard every message. They witnessed every miracle. They saw every deliverance and witnessed every prophecy. And they never asked him, teach us to preach. They never asked him, teach us to do miracles. They never asked him, teach us to prophesy. They go, we want your prayer life. And a question hit me three or four years ago, and I'm going to give it to you today. Does anybody want your prayer life? And you'll know it is if they're asking you about it. If that's what Jesus produced in the ones who saw him the most, if you want to grow in your life in prayer, whether you've been in this thing five minutes or 50 years, this book will shift you into a new place in prayer. And then I wrote a book two months ago. It's called Gift of Tears. Gift of Tears. And uh, it's God's gift. It's God's gift when he delivers you from all your own wisdom, your own gifts, your own abilities, and he backs you into a corner, and he provokes a prayer on the other side of words. Liquid prayer begins to come forth out of your life. Have you ever experienced liquid prayer? Have you ever experienced a depth of prayer that goes past mere words, and it's the depth of your spirit crying out to God, and I believe God is bringing the church into this kind of praying to usher us into a new season. I'll speak into some of those themes this morning. I'm just going to jump right in. I, um, you know, one of, the, one of preacher's famous things to say is look at your neighbor and say it's a new season. <laughs> you know, how many times you ever heard that? Look at your neighbor and say it's a new season. Hallelujah. I've never said that before. There's four seasons every year, so we know that there's always a new season. But I want to tell you, I'm going to, I'm going to say a phrase that I, I haven't ever felt before in my life. I believe that we are entering into a new season. I believe, and I want you to look with me. Can you put up here Luke 4? Since Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, re returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit. And just keep that verse up there for a second. This was right after Jesus gets baptized by 
John the Baptist, and when he gets baptized, the heavens open, and the father openly validates his son by saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit, so at that moment, Jesus is filled with the Spirit, and then we're going to see that the same Spirit that baptized him and came upon him is going to now walk him into the wilderness, where for 40 days, he is going to be tempted, tested, and tried by the devil around the very revelation he's received. Do you know you become a son instantaneously the moment you're born again? But your sonship is manifested through suffering, temptation, and trial. Sons are sons, but we know whether you're a son and how you shine in the midst of suffering, trial, and temptation. Orphans run, sons manifest. That's why Jesus was made perfect through. That's how he learned obedience. How does the one who know everything learn something? How does the one who is already perfect become perfect? It's untested to test it. Anyway, that was, that was good, Corey. I, I thought that was awesome. Thank you, Corey. I, I really appreciate that. I'm going to tie that together in a second. Keep going with me. He was tempted for 40 days by the devil, and in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they ended, he was hungry. And the devil, and we got all the temptations. If you are the Son of God, prove it. Keep going. 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 There we go. Look at verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. He went in filled. He returned in power. He went in filled. He returned in power. What's the difference between being filled and operating in power? The 40 days. The season of temptation, trial, and testing is the gap season that takes the initial thing you've received from Abba and now through testing and trial and temptation you now come through on the other side and now you're operating in power to set others free some of us because what Jesus was doing in the 40-day wilderness he was literally walking it was a prophetic act of him reversing Israel's failure in the wilderness they failed for 40 years in the wilderness. They turned an 11-day journey into 40 years. And Jesus, as the perfect Israel, is now going to trust the Father. I don't have time to, it's not my main point this morning, but what Jesus and what the devil was tempting him over, it was all around Deuteronomy 8, is what's going to happen in the midst of the wilderness. Will you trust God? Will you lean on his word? Or will you look to your own gifting? Will you look to your own ability to bail yourself out? Will you look to your own sustenance? Or will you trust the Father? Jesus is walking Israel's story in the wilderness. And as the perfect Israel, he is reversing the curse. And he's bringing Israel out into a new season. 
Jesus returned in the power. I'm going to tie that together for you here in a second. And news of him went throughout all of the surrounding region. Keep going. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now here we go. Verse 16. So he came to Nazareth. That's his hometown up in the north of Israel. He's going to come to his hometown where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. Okay? So Jesus walks in. They know him. They've known him since he was a little whippersnapper running around the synagogue. They know Joseph's son. They know Mary's son. And here he is, 30 years old, walks in, walks right into the synagogue, asks for the book of the prophet Isaiah to be brought to him. And they hand him the book. This is so vivid. And when he... He had opened the book. So he's going to open the book, and he found, I love that, found the place where it was written. So he's going to go to a specific verse and a specific chapter in the book of Isaiah, and he's going to turn to Isaiah 61. And he's going to quote Isaiah 61, and he's going to say, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me, to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. I love this. Next verse. Then he closed the book, he gave it back, and he sat down. And the eyes, I love this, of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. What's he going to say? And he began to say to them, saying, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Do you have any idea the implications of the phrase, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing? Isaiah 61 is one of the greatest messianic prophecies in the whole word of God. The promised Messiah who would come and deliver Israel from all of their enemies and establish the kingdom of God on the earth. And Jesus goes, I'm he. It's me. I'm the Messiah. This is the thing that I want you to understand. I want you to go back to verse 20. Is This is the phrase that's hitting me. And he, gave, he closed the book. Everybody say he closed the book. Do you understand? Thousands of years. 2,000 years had been anticipating from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and the prophets that saw the coming Messiah. He was coming, he was coming, and he's coming. Jesus is going to read it, and he's going to close the book, and he goes, a new chapter is opening up. A new season is ensuing, and today is the inauguration of the new season. Today is the inauguration of the new season. What I'm saying to you is, it's always safe to say there's coming a day, but I'm here to tell you that there are real days and real times and real seasons where one book is closed and a new book is opened. I need you to understand this. 
Thousands of years contained in him closing that book. He wasn't just closing the book. He was closing the book to the prophets saying we're in a new season. I'm the embodiment of what they saw. My God. Why are you talking like this, Corey? Because I believe that we are crossing into a new era, a new moment in redemptive history that is going to culminate with the literal bodily return of Jesus Christ to the planet. That makes for great claps, but guys, this is going to be the most glorious and turbulent hour of human history. And the book that he closed on that day and launched into his ministry, I believe that we're in a similar moment of the last 2,000 years and we're shifting into something new. I believe 2020 was a global reset. It was the reset to the hard drive, and now things are beginning to come forth up again. And there's a whole new wineskin. There's a whole new breed of leaders. There's a whole new form that's coming in the earth that can withstand the coming glory and coming crisis to the nations. Because he is going to have a church that is going to operate and be his light in the midst of the greatest and darkest hour of human history. And we're going to need more than buzzwords, plastic smiles, and t-shirts that are going to be able to walk us through these coming days. Sunday only Christianity will not suffice. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 126. I'm going to now bring you into a personal journey, a 10-year journey that has just come to a close. I want to read this verse. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. And our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Now, just a little bit before I keep going right here, this was a psalm after the captivity. The children of Israel were were taken into Babylonian exile. An initial group of them returned back from exile. And this psalm was written over the initial excitement over the first fruits coming, but then intercession for fullness to come. And so they're saying, God, finish what you've started. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Now look at this. This is interesting. Next verse. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. You're going to see this little proverb thrown in the midst of, of, of the harvest, of the exile, of the captivity psalm. And he is going to connect the season of weeping to the season of breakthrough, captives being delivered, harvest coming, and the promises of God being fulfilled. He's going to connect the season of weeping to it. Those who sow, everybody say sow. Most of us think of seeds, physical seeds that we sow, but he's saying the tears are actually the seeds that we're sowing that are going to bring forth a harvest of joy. Keep going. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. May of 2011, do you remember where you were 10 years ago? Probably right here. May of 2011, me and my good friend Alan Hood 
went to Fredericksburg, Virginia. We had just come out of a season of 10 months of awakening, 7,000 testimonies of healing, deliverance, breakthrough of God. And we had come out of that season and we came to a conference in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And we got in late that night and Alan was beginning to feel warfare in his body, in his mind, in his soul. And he just starts confessing to me and sharing with me, Corey, I'm not doing good. He starts opening up to me and saying, I don't know what's happening. Things are weird. Will you pray with me? We spent an hour that night just praying in the spirit, anointing everybody with oil, pray the blood over our families, break off the warfare. God, whatever's happening, give us understanding, give us insight. Before I go down to my hotel room, the whole, uh, Alan says, God, give me a dream. Alan goes to bed that night and he has a dream. And in reality, he had written a, an article in ministry today called Standing at the Critical Juncture out of the book of Joel. And how we're in an urgent hour and the call to prayer, fasting, and repentance is the need in this hour. And see, he sees the article on a computer screen and he sees the comment boxes underneath them were witches and warlocks that were cursing leaders, their marriages, families, and that there was going to be an assault on marriages, families, leaders like no other time and he was seeing witches and warlocks were cursing he didn't know if these were real people or if they were christian comments on facebook <laughs> probably a little bit of both i think we're going to be surprised how you sharing your opinion is more witchcraft than it is your opinion it's a different message Alan clicks on one of the boxes and he goes into a room and he sees a man tattoos all over him wrapped in a python and he sees pornography behind him and Alan is just and, and, and this warlock is cursing Alan cursing him cursing him and Alan hears a voice behind him saying Alan it's witchcraft it's witchcraft well the next scene he's taken out of it and he sees thousands upon thousands of young people and he sees an old time tent like the old healing tents and he sees me and a man by the name of bob jones you ever heard of bob jones we embrace one another and we declare that phrase out of psalm 126 the lord has done great things for us for you guys who don't know who bob jones is he was a prophet raised off his deathbed in 1975 and God sent him to establish prophetic end-time movements, one of them being in Kansas City at the International House of Prayer. His prophetic ministry was absolutely critical to the foundation of IHOP Kansas City. For 20 years, we had heard stories about Bob, but had never met him. That's all Mike did was tell us stories about Bob Jones. We never talked about anything else but Bob Jones. Never met him, but that's all we'd talked about. So for me and Bob to embrace one another, we knew the season, whatever the warfare we're going through, is going to lead to harvest among young people. Whatever we're laboring for is going to result, and I think that prophetic song that came out this morning is it. The dreams of the fathers manifested in the sons. And the issue is, are you okay with that? Are you okay that what's in your heart may not be realized in your generation. Can we begin to think transgenerational? 
And for me and Bob Jones to embrace one another, it's the generation that saw it meeting the generation that's beginning to walk into it. And the two generations colliding, saying, God, you did it. The harvest. Well, Alan wakes up from the dream. He runs down to my room, knocks on, bangs on my door. Corey, I can just, he's just screaming from the, wake up, come downstairs. I got to talk to you. The Lord's spoken. I throw my clothes on, run downstairs. And he starts telling me the dream. And he gets to the point of me and Bob Jones embracing one another. And about that point of me and Bob embracing one another, a lady comes and taps him on the shoulder. She says, hi, are you Alan Hood? He goes, yes, ma'am. She she goes, hi, my name is Bonnie Jones. And me and my husband, Bob, would like to have breakfast with you two. Never met him before, never knew. I never thought I would ever meet him. I said, I need to quickly go to the bathroom and have a quick quiet time just to make sure I'm good with Jesus before this guy gets up in my business. Don't need that. We sat down for two hours with him that morning. He's from Arkansas, right down the road from where I'm from. And the first hour and a half was mostly weird. He's a seer, so he literally sees in the spirit realm and he'll talk to you like you see it. But you don't. He talked about crazy things. I, like, it would weird you out if I said, I didn't even understand half of the vocabulary he was talking about. But this is all I kept doing was having a deep look on my face and I kept nodding my head. And, That's good. That's good. I never thought about that. I don't know what he's talking about. And he gets towards the end. He kept talking about both revival and judgment is coming. Both revival. He goes, I thought we could just get revival. Both are coming. And then he kept talking a lot about getting the church saved. We got to get the church saved. We got to get the church saved. And then he gets towards the end. Everybody lock in with me. He gets towards the end and he takes a step back and he goes, ooh, you boys have been preaching Joel. And I see witchcrafts come against you. And he looked at me, he goes, I see python marks in your neck. And he began to talk about how anybody that would stand for more and, and stand for the more in God would become a target for the warfare. And he began to talk to us about this. Well, Alan had heard stories about how Bob would pray over leaders who were under intense warfare, and as soon as Bob prayed for them, it would break right off of them. Alan interrupts him and goes, Bob, would you pray for us? And we're ready. I mean, we got our hands open, eyes closed. He goes, I ain't going to do that religious thing. He goes, what do you think I've been doing for the last two hours? Talking. I don't know. It didn't feel like prayer. It didn't feel like my ideas of prayer. He goes, and then he looked at us and he goes, you boys have been weeping, haven't you? We go, yeah, we were just weeping last night. He said, you see, witchcraft gets in your eyes. And it makes you look on past seasons as if you've never done anything for God. And then it makes you look on future seasons as if you'll never do anything for God. He said, but weeping, weeping gets the witchcraft out of your eyes. He says, you boys are going to be fine. Your ministries are good. Just keep weeping. 
Just keep weeping. Just keep. That was God's homework assignment for the last 10 years of my life. Don't stop weeping. Don't stop weeping. That was God's assignment to me. You have no many, you have no idea how many times over the last 10 years I heard Bob's phrase, you're going to be fine. Well, little did we know that Alan's body and, and, and that weekend was under the tent in Fredericksburg. We ended up leaving shortly that afternoon. What we later come to find out is that Bob, we never told Bob about the warfare and the warlock and all that kind of stuff. But Bob was talking to the crew that night because we had to leave. And he was talking about how he was wrestling a warlock all night in his sleep. Well, what Alan was beginning to feel in his body was the beginning of a thyroid storm. And his body would completely break down. And then two years later, after having three beautiful daughters, we would have a son on June 26, 2012. We named him Josiah Nash Russell after an intercessor by the name of Daniel Nash who was instrumental in intercession in the Second Great Awakening with Charles Finney. And we got so impacted by a hidden intercessor's life, we said, God, give us a son. We're going to name him Nash. Born June 26th, and then on March 16th, 2013, I'm in London, England ministering. My wife goes to see family in Arkansas, lays him down for his nap, and he doesn't wake up. At nine and a half months old, and the floor falls out from under us as we walk through the darkest of nights, the earthquake of earthquakes, the shattering to whether you wonder if you're going to make it at all, your marriage is going to make it, your family's going to make it, and everything is destroyed, devastated, and shattered. And we would walk through the last eight years of saying, God, are we going to make it? It was weeping. It was the clinging to God where you run out of words. God threw me five lifelines out of the Psalms. I'm grateful for David. I'm grateful for a man that could give articulation to the deepest soul utterances. And God gave me five of them that were five life rafts in the midst of the Pacific Ocean. One of the most important ones was Psalm 2 because Psalm 2 is the devil's rage against Jesus' most precious inheritance. And this is what God taught me out of Psalm 2. Corey, your greatest places of warfare are to become your greatest places of inheritance. And wherever you see the devil rage, the greatest warfare in your life, that's the place to come out of the chaos, confusion, and craziness. Make eye contact with the Father and ask the Father to manifest His zeal in that very area. God taught me how to fight. God taught me how to fight. He taught me how to get above the storm of today's chaos and not respond to all the whirlwind, but respond to Abba. Do you know how to ascend above the storm? Psalm 2, the Lord would begin to birth a message, the gift of tears. 
Phrases like Genesis 32, 24. Put that up here. I'm going to just give you a couple of phrases. Genesis 32. Now Jacob was left alone. I shared this with the men last night. What is it about God getting a man or getting a woman delivered? When you run out of options, you run out of enough money, enough wisdom. Have you been in a situation you're not smart enough to get yourself out of it? What I walked through in these last 10 years was the first time in my life I dealt with an unfixable problem because I'm strong, I'm pretty smart, I'm gifted and resourceful, and I can most of the time will my way through. But what happens when God shatters your will, shatters you, and you're found left alone? In that phrase is 23 years of doing his best to get away from the inevitable. He had stolen brother's birthright, ran away 20 years, and now he's coming back in. Esau's coming after him, and he starts getting afraid, and he starts diversifying his portfolio. Wives over here, soldiers, servants. He doesn't want Esau to kill everything he has in one swoop. And finally, Jacob is alone. And guess who shows up when you find yourself alone? A man. Who's the man? Jesus wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And do you know what happened in that midnight wrestle? Jacob turned into Israel. Trickster, manipulator, supplanter will turn into prince with God and will inherit the promises of God and become a nation. But don't you understand, it, it, it took 20-something years to get to verse 24. 24 years to get to verse 24. God does not think it a waste of time to deal with his servants in decades. We are so expedient, convenience-driven, we want it now. And God doesn't think it a waste of time to take you on a decade or two of starving you out and wearing you down until you finally say, uncle, uncle, I give up. Another one was 1 Samuel 1 when a, a barren woman that just enjoyed the, wanted to enjoy the benefits of being a nice married wife, but there was a painful elephant in the room. She's barren. The other wife has everything she wants, and every day she reminds her of it. And for a while, Hannah did the plastic. I'm good. He loves me. It's good. He loves me. It's good. He loves me. But, but there began to be a damn. Can you put up here 1 Samuel about verse 8? 1 Samuel 1, 8. Go ahead and keep going. Hannah arose after they finished. Go to the next verse. And she was in bitterness of soul, and she finally broke. She was in bitterness of soul. There's coming bitterness of soul. And she prayed to the Lord and she wept in anguish. Do you understand? It says this literally in 1 Samuel, year by year. To get to that. <laughs> so God could provoke a prayer out of a barren woman. Go ahead and look at verse 11. She made a vow and you know what she said? Oh, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look... See, she was ashamed for years of the affliction. She wanted to put Band-Aids around it. 
put makeup around it. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. But all of a sudden, she opened up her most painful, vulnerable, humiliating area of her life. Look on it. She invited the gaze of heaven into the most humiliating and vulnerable place of her life. She quit hiding. And she says, look and remember me and give me a male child. And look at this. I will give him to the Lord. That's an amazing phrase. Do you know what that means? Control was broken off of Hannah. She wanted a child to look good to the other wife. She says, I don't care anymore. I'll give him back to you. It ain't about my calling anymore. It's about another generation. It's not about my destiny anymore. It's about another generation. Guys, do you understand those two phrases? She says, look, and I'll give him. I'll give him, which means I ain't going to use this to bolster my thing. She's thinking transgenerational. Do you understand what happened? We all look. Do you understand what's going to happen with the birth of that little baby boy? The priesthood's going to be restored in a generation. The prophetic office is going to be restored in generation. And that prophet is going to anoint King David, who is going to usher in the reign. Everybody wants to talk about David. I want to talk about Hannah. You know what happened. Well, this is the saddest part of all of this is the next verse. She ca- look at this. She continued praying before the Lord. Eli watched her mouth. Eli being the high priest. Look at this. Look at this. So, look. Hannah spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved. But her voice was not heard. One of the saddest verses, Eli thought she was drunk. Keep it there. Go back. This is what she was doing. The greatest, one of the greatest prayers in all of history looked like this. No words came out. One of the greatest prayers ever uttered, one of the loudest prayers ever uttered was not audible. I want you to know God's working a depth in you. It's going to be loud, but for some of you, it may be so loud nobody can hear it. But the saddest part of this is Eli thought she was drunk. It had been so long since the spiritual leadership of the day had seen the spirit of prayer resting on someone, they couldn't even discern it anymore because they became professionals about everything polished, beautiful, articulate, and you got an ugly, barren woman with an ugly prayer, and he can't even discern the spirit of prayer anymore. I want to tell you, everybody, something. It's coming. Ugly praying is coming to the church. I know I'm talking about the most ugly, humiliating, disgusting, mascara rolling, hair shaking praying is coming to the church. It's going to be humiliating to your flesh, but this is the thing. You don't care anymore. And I'm not talking about more emotionalism. I'm talking about you giving up. With that kid you raised in your house who's gone to Stupidville for the last 10 years and you keep saying, it's fine, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, it's all good. God's going to work it out. See, there's something that he uses these moments in your marriage or your children or a physical or a circumstance or a relationship 
And for a while, we'll always revert to, it's good. And God has to take you year by year through the deliverance of your plasticity, your fakery, your polishedness, until he works a depth in your soul that releases a cry that shifts the seasons. I believe we're in a John 11 season where Jesus is four days late on purpose. Something happens in the four-day gap between you knowing he got the report about your, de- your dying brother and him actually showing up. What happens in the four days? You're either going to revert to your plastic buzzwords or you're going to let the moment cut you. You're either going to hide behind your theological walls or it's going to cut you. Because this is what I found in my journey. My ability to overcome God is directly connected to his ability to overcome me. Two sisters. Jesus shows up. The first one's running out there. Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But I know. Hallelujah. You can ask God whatever you want, and he'll give it to you. Your brother will rise again. I know. Hallelujah. He's going to rise again at the resurrection at the last day. Hallelujah. Right theology. I believe in the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. Resurrection isn't just coming. Resurrection's here. And I'm looking for you to do more than hide behind buzzwords and nice theologies. I want you to pull me in. I want you to pull me in. Do you believe this? Jesus asked her. Yes, hallelujah. She finally hits the wall and says, I ain't getting anywhere. She runs back to Mary. Mary runs out to the same space says the exact same words, but she says it from his feet, weeping. And do you know you can say the same phrase from two different postures and provoke two different responses in God? It's not about what you say, it's where you pray it from. And she said, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died, which means I don't understand. And I'm refusing to get out of the tension. Jake was singing about tensions this morning, the tensions of faith, the tensions of I know who you are, but the tensions of I don't understand why why I'm still in the situation. Faith isn't hyper-optimism. It's not happy, hyper-smiles. I don't get it, and I refuse to get out of this tension, though everything inside of me wants to, and some days I will, but I'm always going to come back. It's living in the tension of I know who you are, but I don't understand. And I'm not getting out of this tension. See, it's not about the answers. It's about the cut on your soul. That's the gift of tears. That's the work of God. She wept. And now Jesus says, when he saw her weeping, he says, where have you laid him? They said, come and see. And then we see the longest verse in the Bible. What is it, people? It's the longest for years. I thought it was a sniffle. 
I thought it was a, I thought it was a moment. I'm convinced we're looking at about 30 minutes. Think about how vulnerable God has to be. God shows up in the flesh, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who has Genesis 1 on his resume, born into the world he created. This is the thing that blows me away about the John 11 story. Jesus knew what he was going to do from the beginning. you got to ask yourself a question. Then why didn't he translate to the resurrection? Why did he let a story unfold and him get into the valley of weeping? And what is that valley that's connected to resurrection? Because we all just want to go, yeah, let's fly, fly, fly. Come out, Lazarus. We want to run to come out, Lazarus. And Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, you ain't getting to come out, Lazarus, until you get into the valley of weeping with me. The Son of God wept. The vulnerable, weeping God wept. There's more in those two words than hundreds of chapters in any other book. And I believe that the weeping God is inviting the church in this hour into his heart as the weeping God. Because it's going to be his vulnerability that's going to break down your walls on the inside of you. It's not trying to stir up emotionalism. It's beholding the weeping God. It's not by trying to get there. It's understanding that he gets with you there. Jesus wept. And he comes up out of that valley. And releases a resurrection that's going to begin the plotting of his own death. Well, eight years since that moment, we walked through the darkest of night. I ran to God preaching, and it helped me. I needed Bible verses, and I need to punch the devil in the mouth. My wife just stopped. We had teenage daughters entering into their teenage years. Jake has been with me from day one with our oldest. And we would walk through an eight-year season where my wife in many ways would just stop. The trauma, the psychological trauma, the, the fractured soul, the disconnection, the depression that would lead to addiction, it would lead to alcohol, that would lead to places of comfort. And we would go through an eight-year season We would see breakthroughs. We would see sobriety, but there was still disconnection. And I I was beginning to resign, saying, God, is this the way it's going to be? I'm, I'm in, but God, I need grace to make the the next 60 years. We moved to Dallas a couple of years ago. And in February, just a few months ago, God began to do something. The Lord was connecting us with a group of women there, and they were beginning to bring my wife in in a way that other people were not. They had a a ladies' gathering there at Dallas Upper Room, and the Friday night event, it was like a crack in the wall. It was like a crack inside, and she got touched a little bit. 
And that night, she, it is like February 19th, February 20th. She goes to sleep that night, and right before she goes to bed, she hears a phrase from Jesus. And Jesus is going to quote the same question he asked Peter in John 21. And the question is, do you love me? That's a powerful phrase. Because that, if you don't know, it's after Peter's great denial, eight days go on. And this is what I love about Jesus. He let Peter get used to being back in his presence before he brought up the elephant in the room. He just said, I just want to get you comfortable with me for a little while, and then we'll go there. Lord said, do you love me, Dana? She goes, yes, Jesus, you know I love you. And that is the beginning of recommissioning and restoration when the Lord speaks that phrase. It's the Lord validating your weak yet real love. Well, the next day, it would be February 21st, 10 a.m., Sunday morning. And Lou Engel was with us that morning. And uh, on that specific morning, Jews from all over the world were crying out for the Messiah to come back. Secular Jews, religious Jews, and they were saying, the world's broken, we need Messiah to come back. So Lou gets up there, and we go right into intercession, and before we know it, I'm looking over there at Dana, and she is in full-blown travail. I'm talking about that loud, screaming, I'm not talking about the most ugly, gut-wrenching, birthing, praying you've ever seen in your life. And over the next three hours, she would be in that fetal position screaming like that. And I would drag her up off that floor, put her into the car. And over the last four months, I've been dragging her off of floors and putting her in the car. As my wife's come back to me, my wife's come back. God has absolutely set her on fire. And, 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 and God's taken her. She has gone into these seasons where she's seen our son in heaven. And God has been marking her with the Nasherite call. I didn't share this in Psalm 2. I was asking God, what's my inheritance? And a friend sent me a dream in that season, and the short of it is the church was under siege. We didn't know how to pray in these days as we were in warfare, and I walk into the dream, and a friend gives me, begins to prophesy over me in the dream. He said, Corey, for every one voice of awakening, I'm going to raise up seven voices of intercession. He said it again. One voice of awakening, I'm going to raise up seven voices of intercession. And he says, I've given Lou Engle the Nazarites but I'm about to raise up Nasherites. And the Nasherites are going to be a hidden army of intercessors. Nobody's going to know their names or their faces, but they're going to be famous in heaven, and I'm going to respond to their cries. I get that dream, and I go, okay, God, we're going to make this count. I want 100 million Nasherites. I'm serious. I want 100 million. I want 100 million. Right after this encounter with my wife, we went on a 21-day fast to ask God what the Nasherites are. 
It's Isaiah 62, 6 and 7, set watchmen who will not rest until Jerusalem is a praise in the earth. God's going to raise up 100 million Gentile intercessors across the earth who will not rest until Jerusalem shines. And she will shine when she puts her faith in Yeshua as her Messiah. Well, April, two months ago, a month and a half ago, there was another conference back in Fredericksburg. And it w- they hadn't had a tent conference until 2011. We weren't even speaking at it, but I said, Dana, let's go. Let's just ride this wave. We go, and we would be in one of those afternoon meetings, and I'd see my wife on that very stage in a tent, thousands of people out in the crowd as she begins to share her story. And the power of God hit those thousand people. And the Lord told me, I'm closing the book, Corey. I'm closing the book to this last season. You're entering into a new season. It's always cool to say it's coming. Friend, I believe we're in the season of it's here. But see, some of you have been in the midst of this 10 years and you've built a false identity of your suffering. And you've become victims in your suffering. You've become like the man at the pool of Bethesda who has lots of excuses why you never get your breakthrough. And you've built an identity on your mat. You've built an identity on your mat And you've taken on a false identity of your suffering season. And I believe Jesus is saying, get up. Get up. Get up. Take your bed. Get up. Get up. Get up. No more excuses. No more, well, that that one happened to me. I believe he's releasing Isaiah 61, Luke 4, 18, anointing. I believe that the very ones that are going to operate in the Luke 4, 18, anointing are ones who are in the very prison cells that they're delivering others from. See, it's not a bunch of people who go, oh, praise God, I'm anointed. I don't know what you're walking through. No, it's through the comfort you've received. It's through the mercy you've received. It's through the deliverance you've received that the anointing to deliver others. And I believe that mass deliverance, we're in a moment of deliverance. Prison cells opening. Captives coming out. And it's the season. I believe this with all my heart. Amen? Amen. Let's stand.